Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to the Gospel of John again this evening. Uh, welcome to all those in the class and all those who may be watching online, the multitudes out there who are watching online. <laughs> good to have you with us. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again this evening for allowing us to <clears throat> meet together to study your word. Thank you for our church and the ministries that we can have a part in. Thank you for the emphasis we have on the Word of God and help us, Father, to uh, be diligent about seeking to apply what we hear preached and taught to us and give us willing hearts and open hearts and help us, Father, to uh, have desires that are in keeping with your will. Uh, we pray you'll illuminate our minds and hearts as we think on the scripture this evening from the Gospel of John. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are looking at uh, John uh, chapter 10 this evening. And uh, as we look into John chapter 10, we're in Jerusalem. Um, we are uh, F, number F there in your outline, at the Festival of Tabernacles. So we've been at the Festival of Tabernacles for some time. And the Festival of Tabernacles is in the fall of um, the year. Remember that you said there are three great festivals that every male in Israel was supposed to attend each year. The Passover, and that's followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there's a week there eight days there, that's in the spring, close to what we think of, what we have is Easter, so March, April uh, time frame. And then uh, there is the Feast of uh, Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, which we see in Acts chapter 2, that comes 50 days after Passover. Uh, that's another festival. And then uh, after that, there's this Feast of Tabernacles that we're talking about here. This is September, October. So I've got marked fall there. So we're sometime around September or October of the year. And uh, we have covered uh, part of this, uh, or we part, part, of, part, of, part of the time, we have looked at Roman uh, capital G there, a man born blind. Uh, and uh, that's what we're looking at now, G. We, we have talked about that incident of the man born blind. That was at the Festival of Tabernacles. Jesus is there at the temple or walking to the temple. You know, it's sort of like uh, Peter, when he, Peter and John go to the temple in Acts 3 and they heal this man uh, there in Acts 3, the lame man. Here we have a man born blind who had been blind for 38 years. Jesus heals him. And uh, that leads then to a discourse. Uh, John records a lot of the speeches or discourses of Jesus. We don't see that, you know, really in the Synoptic Gospels. We have, you know, Jesus giving parables, some discussion, but not these long discourses uh, that we see in the Gospel of John. So we are here... Uh, uh, with the healing of this blind man, uh, and uh, 
remember that in that particular, get the context here, Jesus healed this man and the religious leaders are very upset the fact that he was healed on the Sabbath, you remember. And so they question the man, what's going on? Who healed you? Who did this? Of course, he doesn't know really who healed him exactly because he was blind when Jesus told him, put that mud on his eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which he did. And he gets healed. And uh, so they begin to question him and he gets kind of feisty, you know, and he's upset with them questioning him. And uh, so they kick him out of the synagogue. And that's a big deal, remember? Uh, even though Israel has a temple, uh, when they were out of the land <clears throat> in the Babylonian captivity, this, the synagogue system arose. You might think of these like local churches or little churches, sort of like what we have today. So they developed these synagogues where they would go and be taught the Word of God. They were governed by elders uh, and, uh, and so we have Jesus in the gospel speaking in the synagogues at Capernaum and other places. He will go and speak at Capernaum and different synagogues. And of course, in the book of Acts, we have Paul going to the synagogues when he goes out into the Gentile world because he finds Jews there who know the Old Testament and he presents Jesus to them, to the Jew first, you know, he's, that's his, his plan. So this man is uh, kicked out of the synagogue, and when Jesus, John 9, 35 through 41 here, when Jesus hears that he has been removed, that is, he's no longer allowed to come to the synagogue, uh, so he's, he's socially ostracized. You know, this is, we can understand a little bit of this because, you know, I, I, I guess today in the United States, we don't have as much of this because people aren't as associated. I don't know if even Catholics are, you know, uh, you know, in our area here, a large Catholic uh, kind of community. There certainly was a time when someone who was a Catholic and maybe still uh, became a born-again believer and left the Catholic Church. The family would just, you know, hey, we don't want anything to do with you because you've left the true faith and so forth. And that's still true would be in Islam. The same thing. If, if, if somebody left Islam and became a Christian, they would you know, most likely be ostracized by their family and friends and so forth. So uh, this man is kicked out of the synagogue. He's no longer, he's, he's kind of, so he's sort of on his own. Jesus finds him and uh, it says, do you believe in the Son of Man? I mean, that's Jesus' favorite term for himself as Messiah. Um, and he says, yes, uh, and, and so he, uh, verse 38, then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Um, so this leads then to chapter 10, which we're looking at tonight, the discourse on the good shepherd. This is Jesus teaching uh, about uh, uh, his relationship to Israel and ultimately his relationship to Gentiles. So throughout the Gospels, throughout the, uh, the Gospels, though Jesus came, he came to the Jewish people. He was the Jewish Messiah. His ministry was to the Jews. He didn't have much contact with Gentiles. <clears throat> that wasn't his mission. 
He came to, to uh, deliver the truth about the kingdom and so forth, to die for his people. <clears throat> now, ultimately, he gives the Great Commission and tells his, his uh, apostles to go and preach the gospel to all the nations, all the Gentiles. But that's not Jesus' mission, but he does interact with Gentiles here and now, and he gives hints that the future ministry, uh, his, the future ministry of the apostles and so forth is going to be more than just Jews. I mean, the disciples don't understand that at this point. They see him coming and so forth. Uh, they don't realize the the consequences of what's going to happen, that we're going to have Jew and Gentile in one body and all this. This is all going to be new and revealed. But he's going to give a, he's going to give a, a, a discussion here, uh, a story. It's called a figure of speech that is going to explain, help explain a little bit about how Gentiles fit into this situation. So we have this uh, number two here, the discourse on the good shepherd. And the first, the first thing is the shepherd forms his flock, 10, 1 through 6. I say here, in 10, 1 through 18, Jesus presents what John calls, in <clears throat> verse 6, a figure of speech, kind of a metaphor or a comparison, based on Palestinian sheep farming. These sheep pens were sometimes, as in the case here, large, usually walled enclosures, where several shepherds would place their flocks in the pen at night. The sheep would be watched over at night by a hired under-shepherd who is the gatekeeper of verse 3. In the morning, each shepherd would gather his own sheep and lead them out to pasture for the day. Now, Homer Kent, in his commentary on John, he says this. I'm just quoting this. I think it's very helpful to explain uh, how we're to understand this figure of speech. He says, The shepherd in the story represents Christ. And the foal, that is the sheepfold, is a picture of Judaism, <clears throat> the religious system in which God's people were kept until Christ came. This seems clear from 1016 where Jesus called the Gentiles, other sheep I have which are not of this foal. It must also be remembered that Jesus was talking to representatives of Judaism who had just seen the blind man removed from its communion. Thus, he was explaining how Judaism is related to Messiah and his followers. The foal does not represent heaven, for there can be no thieves or robbers there, because there are here in this foal, nor is the picture of salvation of the church, for the shepherd found his sheep already in the foal and then led them out of it. So we're just trying to understand what is this foal. This foal represents Judaism. And Jesus has sheep in Judaism. That is, not every Israelite is saved. As Paul says, not all Israel are Israel. So not every Israelite at the time of Jesus was saved. There is this foal, Judaism, but in that foal are his sheep, the truly born again. And he's going to call them out from Judaism and he's going to have this new foal, this new flock, which is going to be Jew and Gentile, as we'll see. Well, let's see how he explains this. He's first, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, uh, Jesus says, This shepherd comes in the proper way. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. 
The thieves and robbers are the religious leaders who are more interested in fleecing the sheep than, than in guiding, nurturing, and guarding them. So he's talking about the leaders here of chapter 9 who should have had ears to hear, as he says here at the end of chapter 9, you know, you should have had ears to hear what I'm saying. Uh, they should have recognized Jesus' claims. They should have recognized him as the revelation from God, as the Messiah, uh, but they don't. They belittle him. They belittle the sheep. This man who was born blind represents, you know, a true believer. He's believed. He's one of the sheep. <laughs> but what are the what are the, what are the religious? What do the thieves do? They cast him out. They uh, get out of here. You know, you're gone. Here's the true genuine believer, and that's how they treat. Jesus, that's how they treat genuine believers. Verse 2, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The shepherd Christ enters lawfully by means of the gate. This metaphor is probably drawing upon Ezekiel 34 where the shepherd berates, the, the Lord berates the shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders of Ezekiel's day. I won't take time to read that whole chapter, but in that ch chapter we learn how they have failed the people. But God promises to send them His own shepherd, my servant David, and He will tend them, and He will uh, tend them, and they be and uh, be my and they be their shepherd. Um, so, if you look at that chapter, it, it it just says, "You religious leaders should be shepherds of my people," but they're really like thieves and robbers. They're they're not interested in really helping the sheep, and so I'm going to send my shepherd. He says, "My servant David." Now, of course, David's already dead, but he's going to send David's son. And so we have that kind of imagery. We have that references all through the Old Testament about David. David's going to do this. David's going to restore the king. David. It's David that is the line of David. And, of course, David's great son, his ultimate, the ultimate in the line of David is Jesus the Messiah. So uh, Jesus, as David's prophesied son, is the rightful shepherd that Ezekiel is talking about. So Jesus is drawing on that metaphor from Ezekiel 34 to teach what he's teaching here. And so probably these religious leaders understand a lot more than we do, just naturally, just reading this. We might not get the connections. They probably get the connection right away. Probably not too happy about it. Number two, he calls his sheep, 10-3. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So we understand that Near Eastern shepherds have been known to stand outside the sheep pen and call their own sheep that will respond to only their individual voice. This shepherd even calls them by name. The implication of the fact that he calls his own sheep is that they're in some way his own before he calls. So you notice that language. He calls his own sheep. They're already sheep. And he calls them and leads them out. So Jesus is leading people out of Judaism here, true believers. Uh, as we've been previously seen, they have been given, him, given to him by the Father. Remember in John 6, and those the Father gives me will come to me. 
So we're talking about election here, what we call election. God has chosen these and Jesus calls them out. Jesus uh, comes to the sheep pen of Judaism and he calls his own sheep um, who will come out and constitute this messianic flock. Now, none of this really is ha going to happen ultimately until we get the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. But, um, you know, a lot of what Jesus is doing here prepares the way. As I said, the Gospels are a transition. We're transitioning from Judaism to the church age. Now, the church age doesn't officially begin to Acts 2, but we've got this transition going on here where Jesus is giving a lot of truth. He's going to institute what we call the Lord's Supper here before he actually dies. He's going to institute that, that ordinance that we celebrate here coming up in John 13. So, um, so Jesus is, uh, is, is calling out his own flock here. The blind man in this context, he is one of those. He's called him out, you know. And so when the shepherd comes, they recognize his voice. His sheep recognize his voice. Number three, he leads his sheep, verses four through six. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Unlike Western shepherds who drive their sheep with dogs, in the Near East, it's common for the shepherd to go ahead of the sheep and to call them to follow him. The sheep will not follow a stranger, a thief, or a robber. So Jesus elects sheep, follow him. So it reminds us how Jesus is the master, leads his disciples. Now, so that's true. Uh, th those who are truly saved will follow Jesus and listen to Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't be misled sometimes, some way. We can, but we won't ultimately be misled. We won't, we won't, true believers don't ultimately just get misled and, uh, and fall away and go off and never come back. You know, they, we can all be misled by false teaching occasion for a while. But the fact that we uh, are believers, we are his sheep, means that we're ultimately going to hear His voice and know the truth and return to the truth. Uh, that's what God does when He regenerates us. He gives us His Spirit. Remember the natural man, or as the King James says, or the person without the Spirit does not accept. They don't welcome the things of the Spirit of God, but the person with the Spirit does. And that's, what, that's how we, we listen, why we listen to God and we know God and so forth. And so we're attracted to that. You and I are attracted to that. We, we follow that. Uh, you know, we can, we can tell when someone is preaching heresy and nonsense and craziness. You know, we, we repel from that naturally and so forth. Uh, verse 6, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So because these Pharisees are not as sheep, they don't fully understand. They don't get what he's getting at here. Uh, they're blind to the truth. 
Then we have B here. The shepherd becomes the gate, 10, 7 through 10. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus, the shepherds, enters the sheep pen through the gate. But here he becomes the gate through which the sheep are led in and out. Thus, these verses are an expansion. He's kind of expanding some of the metaphors, some of the figures in 1 through 5. He's going beyond that. He is the door to salvation, 10, 7 through 9. Jesus said again, there Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep, and all who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. So here we have a contrast between the gate, which may also you know, be the shepherd, as we saw, and thieves and robbers. This is probably a reference to messianic pretenders. Uh, we know from history there has been a lot of these. There were a lot of these people who came, and there were people who came after this <laughs> uh, who claimed to be the Messiah, Bar Kokhba, 130 A.D., uh, people who came before this, who claimed to be the, Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, they promised a political salvation, but Jesus gives to his real sheep true salvation. There were these uh, Jewish people, according to uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus. I've mentioned Josephus before, but it made me keep thinking that, uh, I guess we kind of all assume who Josephus is, but... Uh, there was a Jewish man who lived at approximately the time of Jesus, right at the time of Jesus. Josephus we, he is his name. He was a Jewish, uh, Orthodox Jewish man and so forth. And uh, when the Romans came, and uh, remember uh, after Jesus' time they came and uh, because the Jews rebelled, the Jews rebelled in, in 66, AD 66, uh, Roman, Romans were oppressing them pretty much. They rebelled. <clears throat> and uh, well, a very young man, Joseph was a young man then, really. Uh, he was chosen to lead sort of the Jewish forces. He, he became a general. <laughs> Josephus became a general. So, and uh, ultimately he was defeated. And uh, he, uh, he, normally he would be executed, but he was a pretty good talker. <laughs> and he... He talked to, uh, he talked to uh, uh, you know, the Romans, and they let him live. And ultimately, he goes off to Rome. He actually, you know, and he goes off to Rome, becomes a Roman citizen. Anyway, it's a kind of fascinating story. But he writes this history. He writes a number of books that are with us today. And he writes sort of the definitive history of the Jewish people. I mean, we got the Old Testament, so we know that. But we don't have anything from... 400 B.C. till the New Testament. There's 400 silent years there. Well, Josephus fills all that in. You know, what happened there? And we generally think that's pretty accurate history. And he talks about these messiahs I'm talking about. He explains who they are and what they did and so forth. And, and people followed them and so forth. Because they're trying to throw off the yoke of the Romans and the, the yoke of the Seleucid or the Syrians, as we'll talk about, and so forth. So uh, there were these messianic pretenders who promised to, uh, you know, uh, to uh, free Israel, give it freedom, and so forth, so on. 
And Jesus uh, is the true Messiah. He's not a thief or robber. Only he is the gate to salvation. Others may promise it. He says, I am the gate for the sheep. And this is, you know, what we'll see in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very exclusive. And he's saying that same exclusivity here. I'm the gate. I'm the only way. And he says here, no one comes to the Father except through me. They'll come in, he says, and go out and find pasture. This language here, uh, come in and go out, uh, is an idiom for living and carrying on one's affairs. Um, so, uh, you know, if you look at, we see this like in Acts. Here, it's interesting that the translators have translated it pretty literally here. They have translated, uh, uh, they will come in and go out and find pasture. You have to because, you know, the sheep come into the, to the, to the, to, uh, to the, to the fold and they go out, you know, and, and they find pasture and so forth. But here is that same exact language, uh, Acts 121, 23 through the ESV, which uh, translates pretty literally here. So one of the men who have accompanied us, now this is Acts 1 where the disciples are, are, are going to choose a replacement for Judas. I'm convinced that Jesus has told them to do this during that 40-day period when he was with them after the resurrection. He's with them for 40 days, then he ascends. I'm sure he told them that they need to choose a 12th apostle. Uh, that's not the apostle Paul. That's a 12th. And so uh, Peter is talking and he's saying, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us. Well, what does that mean? Went in and out, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up. So we want to choose an apostle from our group who has been, who is, who has went in and out. Now the NIV says, who has living among us. That's what that means, you know, living among us there. So they're trying to choose, they want to choose someone who can be a witness of the ministry of Jesus and the resurrection. So you've got to have someone, you've got to have someone who has lived with Jesus, who was there all the whole time, who saw all this and can testify about it. You can be a witness to this. And so they choose member Matthias to be the 12th apostle who can testify to all this. So uh, this language is an idiom for their carrying on their affairs. They will come in and find, and find pasture. So we will, we will, we will live. We will, uh, we will live our lives uh, and find pasture. We'll have a life, as he goes on to explain, a very good life, an abundant life, <laughs> Uh, because uh, we are Jesus' sheep. And he says that. He is the door to abundant life, 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and they have it to the full. Those messianic pretenders never gave the people what they promised, but only war, suffering, and slavery. But Jesus has come so they may have life and have it to the full. Life to the full means life beyond what we can hardly imagine. It's not merely an extension of mortal life, but a far richer life than 
we have known before. So when we talk to people and we say, you know, believe in Jesus and you'll have eternal life. Eternal life means much more than just temporal time. Oh, you'll live eternally. Uh, well, there's a sense in which everybody's going to live eternally. <laughs> if you're in hell, you're going to be there eternally, you know. So eternal life is not primarily about the amount of time it is. It's the quality of life. And that's what he's promising here. You'll have, this life will be life to the full. So, you know, that's access to, access to God in prayer. There's no access to God in hell. You know, there's no access to God in prayer. Uh, we have all these blessings. Knowledge of pardon of sin uh, for eternity. We have God's Spirit to illuminate us, to guide us in our daily lives. So, you know, we, we have an abundant life. I know it, you know, uh, you know I'm sure you <laughs> thought about this. We don't, we don't appreciate it as we should, obviously. We fail to appreciate, not, we don't always fail, but <laughs> we probably don't appreciate it as much as we should, you know, what God has done for us and what He's given us because we're so focused on the here and now and, you know, we just, our dishwasher failed and we went to the Home Depot and paid this exorbitant amount of money. <laughs> An exorbitant amount of money. I hate to even mention the figure. It was just exorbitant to get this dishwasher, you know, put in our house, you know. Did you? <laughs> Well, we paid a lot, too, because the one we wanted was cheaper, but naturally didn't have that. Don't know when they're going to get it, you know, so you got to get this more expensive thing, you know. But we tend to focus on the, you know, we're, you know, the world is too much with us, as the poet said, you know. And that's the problem. The world is too much with us. And so, but we don't appreciate all these abundant life, this full life that God, that Jesus has given to us. And then also, see, the shepherd protects his flock. 11 through 18. First, he dies for the sheep, 11 through 13. I am the good shepherd, and in and, 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 uh, opposition to those false shepherds, those wicked shepherds, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hard hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. When the wolf attacks the flock, when the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it, then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hard hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus now returns back to that metaphor, that figure of speech of one through five, where he is the shepherd, the good shepherd. Good has the idea of noble or worthy. What makes Jesus the good shepherd is his selfless sacrifice of himself for the sheep, even to the point of death. Obviously, here the metaphor speaks directly of Jesus' mission. Verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. On the other hand, the hard hand was motivated by self-interest and personal gain. So hard hands may have watched over the sheep when it's to their advantage, but they wouldn't risk their lives for someone else's property. Um, so the reference again, you know, may be to these religious leaders who profited from their professional labors, but they didn't have any seemingly no real concern for the average Israelite. 
the fact they, you know, they sort of despised them. They didn't really have any real concern for them. So he dies for the sheep, contrary to what the religious leaders of his day would do. He knows his sheep. He says, I, in verse 14, 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and lay down my life for the sheep. So the shepherd and the sheep have mutual knowledge of each other. That is comparable to the mutual knowledge of the father and the son. So our intimacy with Jesus is like the intimacy of Christ with, with the father. And that's our intimacy with, with, the, with, with Jesus. He gathers his sheep, 16 through 18. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. Remember, the sheep pen is, 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 Judea, is Judaism, is Israel. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The other sheep that are not of this sheep pen must be a reference to the Gentiles who are not part of the sheep pen of Judaism. Jesus will bring some sheep out of the sheep pen of Judaism and other sheep from the Gentiles to make one new flock with one shepherd. Now, Jesus hints at this all the way through, like Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church. He's building something new, you know, this new flock. Um, um, and that's what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, so the Jews, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, this true shepherd, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace and one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he puts to death their hostility. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. Now you're part of this one flock built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and raises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by the Spirit. So Jesus is hinting at all this stuff that the Gentiles are going to come in. There's going to be this one flock. I'm going to build my church, you know. Um, and this mission, you know, is announced in Matthew 28, you know. Jesus, uh, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, and go and make disciples of all nations. Now, 
this word nations is the same word for Gentiles. That is, you know, we're reading along here about Gentiles sometimes in the Gospels, the Gentiles. And it's the same word. <laughs> now, there are a couple of words for Gentiles, but often when you read the word Gentile, it's this word nations because the nation, the nation singular was Israel. The nation's always Israel, but the nations are the non-Israelites. They're the Gentiles. So when Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, he means the Gentiles. He's not talking about Jews, you know. He means the Gentiles. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and so forth. Uh, now, <laughs> we do see this carried out in the book of Acts, but, you know, it's amazing how kind of dull the disciples are, or they're Jews. Let's put it this way, they're Jews. And it's hard for them to reconcile this whole new thing that Jesus is talking about. I mean, let's face it. On the day of Pentecost, you know, we have the day of Pentecost, we have the church, and we have all these people added to the church. You know, what about this commission that Jesus gave? As I often say, you know, they don't establish, you know, the First Baptist Missionary Society, you know, they don't, they, don't, they don't send out, they don't say, hey, let's go out there and evangelize the Gentiles. None of the apostles say that. You go to Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 6, Acts 7. No, there's nothing. They're not, we're, we're going, we're, we're talking about years here. If you, you know, and they're not, they're not saying, and what happened to this commission that Jesus gave, you know? Now in Acts 8, there's this persecution and people are scattered. It says, except the apostles. <laughs> they stayed right there in Jerusalem, you know? I mean, <laughs> you think they would have gotten the message here. They got the Great Commission. But no, <laughs> they're right there. They ain't, they ain't going out. <laughs> and, you know, they're scattered abroad and people go out and take the gospel to some Gentiles and so forth. Uh, they end up and, uh, you know, ultimately they go, uh, you know, to uh, they go up to uh, North Africa, to Serene, Cilicia. they go up to Antioch and so forth and take the gospel there to Gentiles and so on. And so ultimately it goes out there, but it's not really the apostles who do that. You know, God chooses somebody else. He gets the, he gets the apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is the one who ultimately delivers on this, you know, you know, the, 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 the apostles are pretty much right there the whole time with Israel and so forth. But ultimately, we do see this commission carried out and we see what Jesus is talking about here, that I have these other sheep and I'm going to bring them and put them into the church. Now, I just keep emphasizing this because to us, this seems... It, it doesn't seem, there's nothing surprising. There's nothing odd here. But if you're a Jew in Jerusalem and you're like one of the apostles, it's not obvious to you that, you know, Judaism is dead. I mean, here's the temple. They're offering sacrifices, but it's all worthless nonsense, pretty much. We don't really find that out till the book of Hebrews gets written years later and says, hey, the blood of bulls and goats, man, this is not doing anything for you. It's just nothing. But it's not obvious that at first there's this transition that takes time 
you know, and the Apostle Paul has to come along and reveal all this and explain what's going on. Uh, you know, they, it's hard for Jews to understand, hey, this stuff is passed by and we've got something new. We've got the church and, and Judaism is really off the map now. And so that, that's a hard thing to, to see. Ultimately, the temple's destroyed in AD 70, you know, and that's the end of that in that sense. Uh, but it's, it's not obvious at first. So this is revolutionary stuff that Jesus is talking about here. And I don't, know, I don't know how much the apostles, the disciples, understood here exactly what he was saying. Uh, now, obviously, John understands it now. You know, he's writing in 85. <laughs> you know, he's looking back. He's writing all this. Obviously, he understands fully what's happening at this point, you know. But as far as we know, he stays in Jerusalem for most of those early years. He doesn't really, we talk about, he said, we said he went out to Ephesus, but that's much later. That's much later in his life when he, when he goes out there. Verse uh, 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So the love of the Father for the Son is eternally linked with the unqualified obedience of the Son to the Father, culminating in the greatest act of obedience of all, His death and resurrection. So even though Jesus is put to death by His enemies, the Pharisees, the religious leaders are concocting a plot. We've already read they had determined to kill Him. Even though they were doing that, on the human side, yet this was all part of God's plan all along, wasn't it? For the Son to lay down His life. And, you know, Scripture tells us that. Acts 2, this is uh, Peter. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through Him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So there's God's sovereignty. On the one hand, this was all part of God's plan, but you're still responsible. And you, with the help of wicked man, put, to death, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So we often use this verse to talk about these two concepts that we can't fully reconcile. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is sovereign. He's planned all this, but doesn't mean humans get off the hook for their sin. They still did this willingly. They desired to kill Him. They wanted to kill Him. They weren't forced to kill Him. They weren't coerced into killing Him. Acts 4, indeed Herod, again, Peter, uh, indeed Peter and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. They did what your power... This is a, this is a prayer. They're praying a prayer after the, the apostles delivered. They're praying to God. They did what your, that is God, your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So God was in control of this, even though they desired to do this and wanted to do this all along. Well, the reaction of the Jews, 10, 19 through 21. The Jews, 
who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So the result of Jesus' discourse is that Jews are again divided, as in 9.16. Some conclude he was mad, possibly from his determination to lay down his life for the sheep. This madness, they conclude, is a result of demon possession. Demon possessed, being demon possessed. But others recalling the healing of the blind man, they can't accept that. We can't, can't reconcile these two ideas. Well, then we have some renewed discussion at the Festival of Tabernacles. I mean, fe Festival of Dedication. Renewed discussion of the Festival of Dedication. 1022 through 42. The setting. 1022 and 23. Then came the Festival of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. So the Festival of Dedication was not an Old Testament festival instituted by Moses. Remember, Moses instituted those three we talked about. The last one was Tabernacles, September, October. But this, this goes back to the 2nd century. 2nd century B.C. Its origins go back to the 2nd century B.C. when the Jews revolted from their Syrian or Seleucid masters after the defilement of the temple in 167 B.C. by Antiochus Epiphanes. So that's a lot <laughs> there. So remember the history of Israel. Israel is taken into captivity, first by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians. They return, they come back, and they're under the Persians. Uh, Cyrus allows them to return, you remember. The Persian uh, Empire gives way to the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, in the 4th century, the early 300s. Alexander conquers the, all the, the empire, the, the Middle East, all the way to India. He goes all the way to India. Into Egypt, he conquers that, you remember. So it all becomes a Greek Empire, everything. Jude, Palestine, everything becomes a Greek empire. And after his death, it ultimately his empire gets divided up. He doesn't have a, he doesn't name a successor. He dies early. It gets divided up among four generals or four empires. So one of them is called the Seleucid Empire. There, you can see that green kind of greenish color there. And then you look down in Egypt, you see the Ptolemaic Empire. So these two empires, the Ptolemaic Empire, the Ptolemies, um, I mean, what happens is Greeks take over Egypt. So uh, uh, Egypt is, there are Egyptians there, but the, the, the people who are running the place are foreigners. They're Greeks. They speak Greek. They're Greeks. Uh, this is where there's a lot of discussion about Cleopatra. Exactly what was Cleopatra? Was she an Egyptian or was she a Greek? There's debate about that because, remember, Cleopatra comes along, um, she comes along uh, in the first century B.C. 
And the Ptolemies are controlling this. In the time we're talking about here, this is the second century BC, but 100 years later, the Ptolemies are still controlling this. And these are Greeks. They speak Greek. They're from Greece. <laughs> and so the empire is Greek. And so there's a question is, is, is uh, Cleopatra, is she part Egyptian? They, they look at her, <laughs> you'll see there are discussions about that. But these people are Greeks. And here in the Seleucid Empire, it's, it's really all kinds of ethnic people there, but it's controlled by Greek people, the Seleucids. And these people are, they want to get their, they want to get their hands on that little strip of land there, <laughs> you know, where it says Jerusalem, that strip of land along the Mediterranean, we call the Levant. I think last time, last semester, we called, it's called the Levant geographically because it's an important strip of land. If you want to get down to Egypt, you pretty much got to go that way. You're not going across the Arabian Desert there. So that's an important trade route, and everybody wants to control that and on all that kind of stuff. And initially, the Seleucids, uh, the, 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 initially the Ptolemy, Ptolemies had it. Initially, Egypt had control of that. So this is, you know, empire. Uh, Alexander gives up his empire in 300 B.C. That's the, you know, fourth century. Now we're down in the 160s. We're in the second century. And the Ptolemies have, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, they've been fighting back and forth. And now the Seleucids have control. And they have control of, of, uh, of Jerusalem, of the Jews. They're in control. And one of their leaders, Antiochus Epiphanes, he wants to turn these Jews into Greeks. He wants to get rid of this Jewish nonsense, this Jewish temple, all this Jewish sacrifices. He burns copies of the Old Testament. He, he, he sacrifices a, a pig on the altar. You know, he does all, in Jerusalem, he does all kinds of terrible things. Uh, a lot of Jews kind of go along with him. You know, this is a, it's, it's a cultural thing. They, a lot of Jews like this Greek civilization. And some Jews went along with this. And so there's a clash among the Jews. There's the real conservative Jews who see this Greek society and Greek civilization, you know, as uh, an attack upon Judaism and invading and, and we're losing our true religion. They want to adopt the culture. I mean, this is the same we face right today, you know. <laughs> How much culture are we Jews, are we Jews, are we Christians going to adopt, you know? How much of the world's culture can we adopt as Christians and still remain, you know, well, that's always a fight. And the Jews are having this fight here. Well, this Antiochus Epiphanes, he, he is uh, just too much for uh, most of the Jews. And so some of the Jews, uh, they, they mount a rebellion. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, the Maccabees is kind of a family name. And uh, the leader of this is one of the sons. The, 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 Mac the family has a number of sons. And the first leader is called Judas Maccabeus. And uh, as I say here, uh, he, uh, Judas Maccabeus, under the temple was recaptured and reconsecrated to God on 25th Keslev, 
164 B.C., which corresponds to December. Uh, so he is able to defeat the Seleucids here in Jerusalem. He's able to cleanse the temple and uh, at least initially kick the Jews, kick these Seleucids out for a while. Now ultimately these Maccabees will expand their empire until they capture all the land that Israel once had. They, they become a large kingdom uh, until the Romans come in in the, in the first century B.C. But uh, so uh, they, uh, the, the temple is recaptured, reconsecrated, rededicated uh, on 164 B.C. This thing starts in 167, so about three years later, 164 they capture this. So uh, this then becomes a festival or a feast that the Jews celebrate. It's not in the Old Testament, but the Jews from that time on celebrate this rededication of the temple. Uh, and they have a, a festival called the 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 the, uh, uh, the, 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 the festival of dedication or the Festival of Lights, I say here. The Festival of Dedication is also called the Festival of Lights because of the lighting of lamps and candles in Jewish homes to celebrate the festival. According to Josephus, and from that time to the present, we observe the festival, which we call the Festival of Lights, giving it this name to it. I think from the fact that the right to worship shone upon us at a time when we could hardly hope for it. Now today this festival is called Hanukkah, which means dedication. And you'll see the time that I had here, uh, if you look there, I've got it right before A.D. 30. So this is December of A.D. 29. We remember the last time reference was the festival of, uh, festival of Tabernacles, which was September, remember, of A.D. Uh, 29. But now we've come further in time. We're in December of AD 29. We're at this festival of, uh, it's winter time, it's December, and there's the festival of dedication. As I say, this festival of dedication, this festival, this festival of lights is still celebrated today by Jews. Uh, uh, they call it Hanukkah. And they have, uh, you know, in their home, they usually have this uh, candelabra, this where they light candles. So they have a candle in the middle there that's lit at the beginning, and then each day they light another candle for eight days. They celebrate this for eight days. So that often corresponds to our Christmas, you know what I mean? So you'll see Hanukkah will vary because the Jewish are on the lunar calendar, you know. So occasionally, you know, Hanukkah will be, the, the eighth day will be right on December the 25th, Sometimes it's early. I forgot when it was last time, what day it started, but you'll often see on the calendar, Hanukkah started. And they'll start this eight-day festival. Now, when I was in school, in high school, I remember we had a lot of Jewish students. But we Christians, we envied these Jewish people because it was the practice to give your child a gift on each day. You know, we only got gifts on December the 25th. But the, <laughs> these Jewish kids got one every day of Hanukkah, you know, this is great, you know, makes you want to convert to, to Judaism, you know, I mean, 
that's what they did, at least where I, where I grew up, you know, it was that way it was. They get a gift every day. So, so this is the festival that they celebrate, and it's become like a Christmas, you know, for, you know, they buy gifts, we buy gifts. So, I mean, all the merchants love this. They, they like Hanukkah too, you know, because Jews are buying gifts and giving it to their kids, just like Christians are buying gifts and giving it to their kids. And so uh, this is the festival now that we're at that Jesus is celebrating. Now, the fact that it's winter here means that Jesus is teaching in what's called Solomon's Colonnade. Now, this is still out there in the court of the Gentiles, but in the back on the east side there of the temple, in, in Herod's temple, there was this uh, colonnade, this kind of covered place, you know, where you get out of the weather. It's called Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Colonnade. And so we're told here temporarily that Jesus is walking in Solomon's Colonnade there rather than the, the exposed courtyard. And then we see that the question of the Messiahship comes up at that time, 1024 through 31. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. The Jews wanted Jesus to openly and plainly tell them if he was the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus had done so privately to the Samaritan woman, you remember. But because the term had too many political and military connotations in his day, he would not use the term among his own people except for his disciples. Uh, I mean, the idea of a suffering servant would have made him look like a fool to the Jews. Um, remember, he did reveal his, his Messiahship to his disciples. Remember Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is, when the, this is much earlier in the Galilean ministry, he asked his disciples, why do, why do people, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist. Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. And, they, and Jesus is saying, well, who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what do you say? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. So Jesus did reveal his Messiahship to his disciples, but not, as we said, generally to most people at, until we get to about this time. Uh, but uh, the idea here of, um, you know, he, he, he's going to talk about his Messiahship more clearly now, but it's going to be talking about dying on the cross. The Messiah is going to suffer. Well, that, that's a very, that was not the, the idea that they were, that was not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. Now, we know, we all know Isaiah 53, but it wasn't obvious to everyone that that was the Messiah. Some people thought so, and some Jews thought so, but it's hard to reconcile those two concepts. You know, a, a Messiah, that's a Messiah to come and reign as a king, right? And, and Jesus is talking about a suffering Messiah. I mean, look at this. So we just saw where, where uh, you know, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And Jesus says, wonderful. But he goes on, notice. 
From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to the Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Well, you think, well, that's wonderful, Lord. That's just great. We, I mean, that's wonderful. It's not wonderful, but you're going to die and we're going to have eternal life. What does Peter say? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Look at Luke 18 here. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Didn't understand any of this. They didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Now think about that. Now let me ask you this question. I want you to think about this and give me the answer next week here. Okay. So, if a person is saved today, don't they have to believe that Jesus died for their sins? Sure, right? They have to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. Now, were the disciples saved? Was Peter saved? I think everybody say, yeah, yeah, he was saved. But what about this? How do you explain this? He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And Peter says, never, Lord. This is not going to happen to you. And then when he tells them in Luke 18, they're going to put me to death, kill me. The disciples didn't understand that. It was hidden from them. They didn't know what he's talking about. So how do you explain that they're saved people and they don't get the part about Jesus dying for them? Yes. That's true, but don't we have to know, you and I, that Jesus died for our sins to be saved? No, he hasn't died yet. <laughs> okay, there's a clue. Should I leave you in suspense the next week? <laughs> yeah, that's true, that's true. There's more to this, but I, I'll take a little explanation. So let's think about that. It has to do with what's called dispensationalism. <laughs> How about that big word? Okay. All right. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll pick this up next week. <laughs>